because the goal is not to completely subjugate Afghanistan. The goal is to use Afghanistan to wash money out of the tax bases of the United States, out of the tax bases of European countries, through Afghanistan and back into the hands of a transnational security elite. That is the goal, i.e. the goal is to have an endless war, not a successful war. The goal is an endless war, not a successful war. Those were the words of Julian Assange in 2011 in relation to the war in Afghanistan. Words which could now equally apply about Ukraine. Ukraine should absolutely be able to join the EU, but on terms that don't bankrupt its people and when it's ready and when a majority of its people choose. But that certainly will not be happening while the country is an active war zone and everybody knows it. So instead, we're artificially prolonging this war with a steady flow of heavy weapons, attacking peace efforts as appeasement. The EU is guaranteeing a stalemate and ensuring that Ukraine will never be able to choose its own path. President von der Leyen gave the game away last Friday when she said Ukrainians are ready to die for the European perspective. My God, what a deluded narcissist. The real plan here, we know candidate status is bait in a trap. The real plan is to transform Ukraine into a meat grinder, use its people as cannon fodder in an endless proxy war against Russia with the European taxpayer footing one bill after another for the arms industry. There's nothing to celebrate in that. Continues when voices on as the war on, on, on as the war in Ukraine continues when voices everywhere should be calling for a ceasefire and peace. This resolution is driving us in the opposite direction, so I proudly voted against it. It peddles the latest slide that this is not now about defending Ukraine; it's about Ukraine must win. What does that even mean? Last April, there was a deal on the table which would have seen Russia withdraw in return for Ukrainian non-NATO membership. 
But Ukraine's Western friends, killer clown Boris Johnson and NATO rocked into town and told them to keep fighting. The result? Six cities devastated, four provinces illegally annexed, 108 billion euros in aid, which the people of Ukraine are going to have to pay back over decades, global food and energy crisis. Is this winning? Ordinary people don't win in wars. They're cannon fodder in the games of others. And ye can shout glory in here all you like, but there's no glory in the grave, and only graves come out of this folly. It's time for people and the silent majority all over Europe to take to the streets this weekend and demand peace and an end to the war. It all seems so idiotic. All the accusations of unpatriotic. The fall will always remember. Capitulating silence election November. Before the winter of the long hot summer. Somewhere in the desert we raised the oil pressure and waited for the weather to get much better. For the new winter blowing the storm. We tried to remember the history and the region of French Foreign Legion imperialism. Peter O'Toole and hate the Ayatollah were all we learned in school. Not that we gave Hussein five billion Not of our new bed partner, the Syrian And of course no mention of the Palestine situation It was amazing how they steamrolled They said 80% approval But there was no one that I knew pulled No one had a reason for being in the Gulf We waited for Congress to speak up Illegal build-up, but no one would wake up our representatives were Milly Vanillas for corporate Dallas Cowboy Beverly Hillbillies. <laughs> With perfect timing, the politicians rhyming the sentiments so nicely. Oil, gold, and sand, my sentiments precisely. We regretfully support the lunacy I'm afraid there's no time for more scrutiny National unity Preserve our community Teflon election opportunities We're in profound abundance On January 2nd the Bush administration announced a recession had stricken the nation The highest quarterly earnings in 10 years were posted by Chevron Placed in our hand as the deadline in the sand came to an end So much for the peace dividend A billion a day was what we spend And our grandchildren will pay for it to the end When schools are unfunded and kids don't get their diplomas They get used for gumbo diplomacy Disproportionately black or brown we see Bullet catches for the slave master Then the conservatives called up reservists to active service Left families nervous, but more importantly broke 900 a month, but the check came late Army red tape you see, this golden opportunity We watched the tube and read the newspaper The propaganda of the gas mass raper Was the proper slander to whoop up the hatred The stage was lit and the lights were all faded The pilots and night vision goggles created And generals 
listening to the cheerleading in here, safe and secure, thousands of miles away from the front lines, I think it would be a useful exercise for us to remind ourselves about what ordinary Ukrainians are experiencing. The Economist reports of forced recruitment across the country. Draftees with no experience or training are being sent to the front in what a UK minister calls first world war levels of attrition. Casualty figures are secret, but we know there are estimates of about 120,000. Battalion commanders tell the Washington Post of recruits fleeing positions en masse. Politico reports a crackdown on deserters. These are human beings, and there is a shameful lack of empathy for ordinary people in the war rhetoric in here. The debate is about keeping the weapons flowing to keep the war going. Ukraine is burning through a generation of men, sons, husbands, brothers who can never be replaced. This cannot go on indefinitely. And ye sickening war generals who sit in here and will these men to our debts, you make me sick. We need peace, we need dialogue, however unpleasant that may be. Let nations arbitrate their future troubles. 
must be popping in the arms industry boardrooms all over Europe. A plan rushed through behind closed doors, no public consultation, no public debate, presented as a fait accompli just waiting for our rubber stamp. A unilateral declaration by an unelected commissioner that Europe is now a war economy. Not a war on poverty or homelessness or on climate change, but a diktat to the public of Europe that they have to accept another one billion euros being laundered from their pockets into the fat wallets of the global arms industry. The workers in those factories have to suck up the suspension of the Working Time Act, and if they don't, they'll be brandished as traitors or Kremlin agents. And if that wasn't bad enough, it won't be just our arms industries, because our friends in the US and Israel can dip into the pot, flog off bits to their European counterparts, they'll do the final assembly, put a stamp and a premium on it, and it's champagne all round. And why wouldn't it be? At three to four thousand euro per shell, and we're expected, the workers of Europe are expected to pay for a million of them. It's absolutely outrageous. If you really cared about Ukraine, you'd be pushing for peace. But the EU hasn't lifted a finger to push for peace in Ukraine. In fact, it's done everything to escalate the conflict and prevent peace. Because for the EU, it's all about the war profiteers. And the catastrophe in Ukraine is nothing more than a global opportunity for your friends. It's an absolute disgrace. It's about time you started to work for peace. Says, 
Good evening, everybody. You're tuned into Cheap Tuesdays 101.5 UMFM. Let's start at the top of the show here. You know, it's just amazing to me how quickly and completely the so-called left has abandoned its anti-war uh, stance. It used to be common knowledge amongst us that uh, war was bad, okay, and uh, that the American government were bad. They were a bunch of uh, warmongering psychopaths only concerned with lining their own pockets, as Julian Assange and Claire Daly pointed out, and George Orwell in 1984 as well, by the way. Um, as they both said at the beginning of the show, it's a gigantic scam just to keep us in a state of endless war and line their own pockets. Um, after those two commenters, you heard John Fogarty, an excellent track there called I Can't Take It No More from his album Revival. From the last period when there was a consistent anti-war music being made in the 2000s, back when it was easy and safe to do it. It was easy to be against war then because it was Bush and Iraq and WMDs and all that. But you know, it's not like things got any better after that when Obama was in power. Obama had the drone program, there was Libya, there was Syria, all that crap happened under his watch. Trump didn't do much better either, although at least he didn't start a new war in his four years. He certainly didn't do much for peace. Nothing has changed, folks. It's the same people doing the same crap again and again and again. So, like, if you're wondering why all my anti-war songs that I've been playing on the show seem to always mention oil, deserts, WMDs, is because artists have been turned into brainwashed cowards now and refuse to write any more anti-war songs. So maybe at some point I'll get one that's going to be relevant to what's happening today, but I doubt it. So after that song, we heard uh, Claire Daly again sticking it to the EU Parliament, uh, of which she's a member, uh, mentioning something that most people still don't seem to know. Um, that the West vetoed a peace agreement that was signed in April 2022 by both parties, the Ukraine and Russia. This has now been verified by multiple high-level sources like the ex-Prime Minister of Israel, sources in the Ukrainian, U.S., and Turkish governments. Could have saved the lives of potentially hundreds of thousands of people. Although, you know, as she says, the exact number is hard to know since it's being kept a secret. Um, follow that up with a track from the uh, Disposable Heroes of Hypocrisy. And the track there was called The Winter of the Long Hot Summer. And it's amazing. I'm not going to go through the lyrics with you. There's a lot in there. It's just amazing how little has changed in the last 30 years. So many of the processes that are described in that song are still being used today with equal effect. Um, then we heard Claire Daly once again uh, talking about how things are falling apart in the Ukraine, quoting a political story about soldiers deserting. Um, I'll add to that a recent report in the New York Times. Um, senior U.S. officials have privately expressed frustration that Ukraine's military, fearing increased casualties, is not pressing harder to breach the Russian defenses. Um, when asked about the American criticism, Andrei Zagorodnyuk, a former Ukrainian defense minister who advises the government, said in an email, why don't they come and do it themselves? So my quick answer to that, it's uh, because they're cowards and they're using the Ukrainians to do something that they know their own population would never be okay with. The one thing that would absolutely change public opinion on this war would be if they started to send uh, American and Canadian soldiers over there to fight and die. So they're just using the Ukrainians. It's disgusting. Um, Claire Daly mentioned in that uh, little speech there that the front is seeing first world war levels of attrition, which is, uh, wow, horrible to hear that. 
If you know anything about trench warfare and the suffering of the soldiers in that war, then you know how bad that is. And by the way, if you don't know, I can't recommend enough a couple of things for you. Um, All Quiet on the Western Front, if you've never read that, it's a novel about World War I from the German perspective with harrowing accounts of the battles. Uh, really just an unbelievable read. Um, the movie 1917, the one that simulates one long take, which I just thought was excellent. Um, if you crave something more documentary in nature, uh, They Shall Not Grow Old is just another superb one that restores footage from the war to a breathtaking effect. So uh, given that she was talking about that and I started thinking about it, I thought I'd share a uh, World War I anti-war song, I Didn't Raise My Boy to Be a Soldier by Morton Harvey, a song that he wrote and released before the U.S. joined the war, and it actually became like a hit, um, but he eventually stopped singing it when the U.S. joined uh, the war as it would have been deemed too unpatriotic. So I just got got a couple of things from Wikipedia here. Um, The song helped solidify the anti-war movement enough to make it politically relevant on the national stage. The song was in the top 20 charts from January to July 1915, reached number one in March and April. Uh, The song's success and its resulting political strength brought supporters to the pacifist movement, whose main priority was other issues. Uh, At the time, prominent politicians attacked the song, both for its pacifism and early feminism. Theodore Roosevelt remarked that foolish people who applaud a song entitled I Didn't Raise My Boy to Be a Soldier are just the people who would also in their hearts applaud a song entitled I Didn't Raise My Girl to Be a Mother. Uh, Harry Truman, then a captain in the National Guard, hated the song. He suggested that the place for women who opposed the war was in a harem, not in the United States. Um, So then we heard uh, Claire Daly again uh, talking truth about the fact that, again, this is just this whole war is just lining the pockets of the military industrial complex while screwing over the working class of Europe. And you can apply that to North America as well. Um, So political songs can have an effect. Right. And and I I gave you a little piece of that from that. I didn't raise my boy to be a soldier. Um, but I'm sure you know this. You, you can go back and look at Edwin Starr's war uh, during the Vietnam War. You know, there were quite a few in the 2000s and they did have an effect. So I'll just repeat the same thing that I did last week. If you're a singer songwriter out there or if you're in a band that was making political anti-war songs in the 2000s when it was easy to do it, I challenge you to do it again. Yes, you'll face backlash and people will hate you for it, which is where that madness song comes in called Embarrassment. It's a a clever little song in that you don't really know exactly what the writer did or the the, uh, narrator did or said, but he's done something and his family's basically disowning him. And that's the kind of thing that you might expect, maybe not from your family, I hope, but from society. But that's what it means to uh, stay consistent in your principles. If you don't do it when it's difficult, when there's some sacrifice involved in it, then it's not a principle, it's a hobby, to paraphrase John Stewart, who uh, has seemingly forgotten his own lesson, by the way, but we don't need to get into all of that. So that's it for the anti-war stuff this week. Uh, I'm not live in the studio again. Um, I don't drive, and it's a bit of a pain in the neck going into the studio. The next bus after 11 o'clock is until like 11.45, and it's just a long time to wait that late at night, and I'm old. And so that's why I sound a bit echoey. I'm just recording it on my uh, laptop. So I'm sorry about that. Um, If you do want to hear a live show, uh, this week's Saturday, 
me and Jeremy Rancid will be taking over Jared's time slot from 7 to 9 p.m. to resurrect the Saturday night special, the show we used to do, jeez, uh, like 20 years ago already. Should be a good time uh, and a nice mix of music from both of us. So tune into that. Jeremy Rancid, by the way, uh, is from the Sorted Hour that uh, used to air on Monday nights, although I think now he's on hiatus. So going to do a massive dose of score music this week uh, and got sort of inspired to do this again by Pluto TV. Have you seen this? Pluto.tv. Uh, it's like a free streaming website. Uh, they have commercials, but they've got a whole bunch of different stuff. They've got a South Park channel that just plays South Park 24 hours a day, which is pretty great. And they've got a classic Doctor Who channel, <laughs> which is great. Even if they do seem to favor John Pertwee to an unreasonable degree, and he's definitely the worst of all the doctors. Even if he has some great stories, he's a pretty terrible doctor. So who's the best doctor out of all of them? Well, I'm a lifetime fan, and I've waffled back and forth between a lot of them. Um, my doctor, as in the one I identified with the most because he was the first one that I saw all the episodes from in order as they aired on uh, PPTV in the mid-80s, was uh, Peter Davison, the fifth doctor. So for a while, he was my favorite. But uh, as I watched more of the show, I quickly found him to be a bit boring and some of the other ones to be a bit more exciting. Um, the first doctor, William Hartnell, was long my favorite because I love old black and white sci-fi and his episodes were rarely on the TV. So when uh, YTV started airing them at 3.30 when I was in university, I taped them all and amassed a VHS collection of all his episodes. And so he kind of became my favorite for a long time. Um, but it was only relatively recently, like, you know, within the last, like pre-pandemic, but still pretty recently, um, that I managed to watch all of Tom Baker's, the fourth Doctor's episodes, in order from start to finish, which I had never done before. Um, and actually, I filled in the last few of the classic series that I had never seen. Uh, and I have to say now, I think he's the best. And by the way, I'm not anti-new series, okay? I'm not one of those uh, fans. Um, Eccleston and Tennant were both excellent. Um, and uh, that other guy, the old guy, um, whose name I always forget, even though he's great. It's also Peter something. I can't remember, and I'm not going to look it up. He was great. Uh, the, the latest one, the, the, the female doctor, I just find her to be a lot like the fifth doctor uh, in a lot of ways. She's just kind of dull. She just doesn't really have a strong personality like the doctor should have. So I, I'm not a big fan, to be honest. Um, anyways, enough of all of that. Uh, today... We're going to feature the fourth Doctor on the score, uh, which is behind my schedule. We should have been doing this in April, but that happens. Um, unfortunately, even though he was awesome and the stories were awesome generally, the music was kind of only so-so, especially the stuff that got released. It was a mixture of sort of electronic and orchestrated, and listening to it today, trying to listen to different scores, it was really quite repetitive and dull for the most part. But... On the 50th anniversary 11-disc collection, uh, they do a great job of mixing in sound effects with shorter orchestrated pieces, and it makes for a pretty unique listening experience. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to hear from uh, several different people here. The sound effects that you'll hear are pretty much all Dick Mills, um, but we've also got Dudley Simpson, a, a classic composer for Doctor Who, and uh, Jeffrey Burgon. And in the last season of uh, Tom Baker, uh, 1980, some guys with a different kind of style and a thicker synthesized sound came in and did some great work 
and they've kind of bled over into the fifth doctor as well. Um, Patty Kingsland, Peter Howell, Roger Lim. Um, so you're going to hear quite a nice and interesting mix of music here. So I hope you stay tuned for this. This is Cheap Tuesdays 101.5 UMFM. I'm your host, Dan. And here is some music from, we're ranging from like 1974 to 1981, pretty much, because uh, Tom Baker did seven years as the doctor, uh, a record that I don't think will ever be broken. So enjoy. See you back here next week, 10 to 11 p.m. Maybe be doing it live. Who knows? See ya.
Yeah. Mm-hmm.